3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, everyone. Morning, Priya. Morning, Priya. Welcome, listeners. <laughs> yeah, uh, you're listening to Thursday Breakfast, um, 3CR, 8.55 a.m., and we are once again coming to you from our homes. Hey, Carly. Hey, Sahirzad. Hey, how's everyone going this morning? Yeah, pretty good. Good. How how is everyone else? Uh, slowly getting by. <laughs> I feel like um, it's a very undulating time. So you know, every few days I'm like, oh, I'm doing well, and then just drops again. Um, but yeah, really hoping that the restrictions will ease off soon. Mhm. I miss being in the studio. I only got to be in there for a couple of weeks before shutdown. That's true. Oh, no. yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was I was pretty excited about coming back um here and going into the studio and I came back here into the whatever this is. <laughs> Zoom meetings. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, I'm really looking forward to like getting back and actually sitting in front of a microphone and also with headphones as well. Um, and I really love like really nice sound quality. So I'm actually looking forward <laughs> to having some interviews with amazing sound quality again, um, which I know is a bit nerdy. Yeah, I make myself sound a lot more polished when we're recording on here um, than I would if I was in the studio. But... What do we have on today? So first up, um, you're going to be hearing the sixth installation of uh, Liberation Loops. So this week you're going to be hearing a conversation that I have with Lauren Caulfield. Um, And Lauren works at the intersection of interpersonal and state-sanctioned gender violence and is involved in training, organising work and community-based interventions to violence. So specifically this week we talk about um, a couple of tools that people can use to intervene um, in interpersonal and intimate partner violence. So that's asset mapping um, and also safety planning. And I hope listeners get something out of it. Um, Max is going to be speaking with April Watson, uh, daughter of Auntie Tanya Day, on the open letter from families of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander deaths in custody, calling on the Australian government to urgently release people from prison to prevent COVID-19 deaths. Then I speak with Dr. Shakira Hussein, who's a writer and academic at the, uh, in Multiculturalism and Muslim Studies at the National Centre for Excellence in Islamic Studies at the University of Melbourne. Um, and she speaks to us a little bit about the intersections of race, Islamophobia and COVID-19. And finally, I speak with Chelsea Bond, who's a Manandali and South Sea Islander woman and long-term Aboriginal health worker and researcher. Um, she's an associate professor at UQ's Post Health Center for Indigenous Health and is also a co-host of the show Wild Black Women on 989 FM in Yangon. 
and we talk about uh, the anniversary last year of 250 years of Aboriginal resistance and the public discussion that's been circulating around Captain Hook, uh, Captain Hook, <laughs> Captain Cook, and um, the way that we discuss colonial history um, and sort of venerate it in the present day. And I think that's us. Oh, and before I forget, we start off with the news with Kate. In a revelation that will likely not surprise listeners, a new study, study focusing on kidney disease adds to the growing evidence that suggests addressing institutional racism will improve overall health outcomes for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. So the new research from the Australian Healthcare and Hospitals Association's Deebles Institute shines a light on solutions being implemented across the health sector, as well as highlighting gaps in current race discrimination law. Australia's first Aboriginal dentist, Dr Chris Burke, who co-authored the paper, said many of the health disparities faced by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders could be linked back to racism. To address those poor outcomes, the paper says four key, key areas need addressing, being cultural sa safety, institutional racism, national safety and quality health service standards, and race discrimina discrimination law. The paper argues that current race discrimination laws focus more on individual action and do not adequately address systematic racism. And the global lockdown measures taken to stop COVID-19 in its tracks have caused a staggering drop in energy demand, with renewables being the most resilient as demand for clean power increases, according to the world's energy watchdog. So roughly one-third of the world's population is in some form of lockdown to stop the spread of COVID-19, a report from the International Energy Agency showed. And there is expected to be a 6% decline in energy demand over the next year, making it the biggest drop since World War II. So the International Energy Agency said the drop would trigger multi-decade lows for the world's consumption of traditional power, such as oil, gas and coal, while renewables continue to grow. And although we're heading for an unprecedented dip, climate scientists have warned that this amount alone will not have any perceptible impact on the changing climate, and that Australia is now well positioned to pivot towards renewables. And across the country, rates of domestic violence have ballooned since Australia went into lockdown. A recent study, a recent survey by the Centre for Women indicated an increase of incidents of violence in Queensland showed a 20% increase in family violence. Last month, the federal government injected $150 million into domestic violence services after announcing internet search engines had shown the highest rise in searches for domestic violence help in five years. But as families spend more time at home, it can be a dangerous time for women to reach out on the phone. So a lot of advocates are calling for men to reach out to violent services like 1-800-RESPECT and Men's Line before it escalates. On the line, Chief Executive Samantha Fredericks said between February and March, the organisation's Men's Line service has seen a 34% increase in callers who reported family violence concerns. She said she wanted men to understand they can reach out for help before the situation escalates. And that's all for Thursday Headlines. Thanks. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's Voice of Dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. Okay, I think it's time to head into a song. 
This one is by Misha. Hold strong. Listening to 3CR 855 AM Thursday morning breakfast. Um, and that track there was Hold Strong by Misha. What would you like to share with listeners today? Other ways of responding to harm. Liber- liberation. Lib- this sound shield that you could take with you to protest. Collaborative dialogue. Demystify the process. Li- liber- liber- liberation loops. Hi, my name is Carly Beck and you're listening to Liberation Loops, a series that has been created and produced from both my bedroom and the 3CR studios on the lands of the Wurundjeri and the Bunurong peoples of the Kulin Nation. This is a series that dives deep into people's practices to challenge the criminal legal system and through this series I hope to discover in what ways people are already addressing violence in our communities and in what ways people are learning to heal from harm. 
Today I'm speaking with Lauren Caulfield about community-based responses to harm. Lauren works at the intersection of interpersonal and state-sanctioned gender violence and is involved in training, organising work and community-based interventions to violence. She also coordinates the Policing Family Violence Changing the Story project, which is a collaborative, integrated community legal and survivor support project that responds to harm and criminalisation of people through family violence policing. Welcome, Loz. Thanks for joining us here on 3CR. Thanks so much for having me. So what drew you to doing this work? Um, look, that's such a, it's such a big um, and large question. I guess if I answered it personally, there's a whole lot of stuff around my own experiences um, of, of violence and responding to it in the lives of, of my loved ones and, and the ways that violence has occurred in communities that I've been a part of. And then when I think about the work that I've done as part of the family violence sector, this specific sort of nexus of work around policing family violence and, and that intersection with um, with interpersonal and state-sanctioned violence, that's emerged very specifically for me. I think as I've seen the sort of, I guess what I'd call the carceral creep in, in anti-violence organising or in, in family violence responses uh, in this location in Victoria where I work, um, and I'd say of that, you know, there's such a strong history and movement here, especially of Indigenous-led anti-violence and abolitionist organising. Um, and then in turn, the, the refuge movement, it's the refuge movement itself, which spawns so much of, of, of family violence work and family violence services, was always really fiercely grassroots and saw those links between gendered and state violence. But increasingly, there has been that sort of pastoral creep or the pressure to kind of build relationships and, and defer things across to, to police, to prisons, to criminal legal systems in the name of safety. And I think we've seen that so strongly here through the Royal Commission into Family Violence, where a whole lot of the focus and emphasis was really on centering uh, and enshrining, and certainly trying to improve, but centering and enshrining police responses to family violence. And then if we look at that uh, in the nexus uh, with other sort of racially targeted policing and the ways that, that drives police expansion and also criminalisation, it means we're working in a really specific concept here. And I think for that sort of wider focus for me, particularly as we know that still the majority of people experiencing intimate partner violence don't contact police and often don't contact services. So that sort of idea of safety being something that occurs solely in, in agency context um, really doesn't fly. Mm, absolutely. And I think um, that's really interesting that you brought up about people not contacting organisations because now people are also very wary about the organisations that they contact and whether they too will call the police as first responders. Yeah, I think that's such an astute observation. I think it's something that we really are grappling with in this moment and this concept, you know, what does it mean if the types of interventions that people can expect themselves might co-sponsor violence or other types of violence, including state violence. So I think that's very much the kind of moment for this conversation and a lot of this work that we're here to talk about today has been occurring in that context. So, um, yeah, I'm really excited about this conversation because um, for listeners, if you haven't already listened to episode two, um, where I spoke with Lung Dang, 
about um, pod mapping, then I definitely recommend for listeners to go back and listen to that. And I think pod mapping is a great tool that can be used to map out your networks um, before entering a crisis situation where either you've um, caused harm to somebody or someone has caused harm to you. And today we're going to be delving into some tools and frameworks, laws that um, you've created that came out of the Beyond Triple Zero workshops. Can you tell us a bit more um, about how these workshops started? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, and I think hopefully it should link, I think, with some of the conversations you had about the pod mapping work earlier in that previous episode. Starting from that kind of context that we've flagged a little bit briefly here, one of the things that a number of us in the Transformative Justice Network uh, here in Missy were, were thinking about doing is, is work to build capacity in our communities to respond to violence. So as part of, as part of that thinking and conversation, one thing we did was invited uh, Rachel Hertzing, who's a Turtle Island-based transformative justice organiser over here, and she ran something that over there had been called a Beyond 911 workshop. And that, through doing that workshop and thinking about the work there, that really dovetailed with some of the work and thinking we'd been doing here, looking at sort of community capacity building to respond to harm. So not assuming that alternatives really readily exist to responses through the, the prison industrial complex or the criminal legal system, but really trying to grapple with some of those threshold questions around uh, what it takes to actually respond to a crisis in a community-based context. And I know that Connie Burke wrote very beautifully about that in The Revolution Starts at Home. I think she asked the question, you know, what would we do if we knew that a crisis was coming in five to ten years? What would we, we do to, to prepare for it? And they're, they're the sort of threshold questions that we're looking at around how do we get out from underneath the kind of emergency of constant crisis responses to actually take up that challenge and to think about what we need to do to be ready. So so the Beyond Triple Zero workshops here are kind of dovetailed with and adapted from some of that work and really tried to start from that place. So when those workshops happen, um, and they've happened in a whole lot of different contexts, in community contexts, We've gone out and delivered them to services and agencies. We've done them in kind of movement forums and contexts. They really start with some of those context questions, so questions to reflect on how and why pastoral responses are so central in family violence work at the moment, to think about what happens when interventions themselves actually do co-sponsor violence in that way. And it's not, it's not coming from a place of telling people what to think at all, but trying to create a space for critical reflection on this moment in family violence or anti-violence work, and particularly thinking about who this work is for and who it's by, what got us here, what we're actually here to do or called to do, um, and where we want to be. And also to reflect on whether the default interventions that we have in place at the moment are actually achieving what we want them to. Um, and so as part of that, we tend to do things like exercises to unpack um, why we default to triple zero responses and in also thinking about how we can respond in a community-based context, uh, what we're trying to achieve and what the specific characteristics are that, that we're wanting to get out of one of those responses so that later we can think about, about these characteristics and how we can assign them in other ways. Yeah. And I think... Probably the other thing to mention, and it, it relates to a conversation you and I had very briefly yesterday around, um, I think, the idea or the pressure of kind of perfectionism, including in this work. And I think 
that work to kind of interrogate what happens around police and criminal legal responses is really vital because it also gives us something to measure community interventions against. Mm-hmm. And we know that we work in a, in a context that is, you know, it's increasingly professionalised, it's increasingly a non-profit uh, context. And so that sort of non-profit industrial complex drive for easily marketable victories um, can really lead us to, to sort of evaluate in ways that lose the nuance of this work or that encourage us to compare, um, to, to sort of compare and justify any work that occurs outside of agency contexts or in a community setting. And so one thing we've observed is that as that work's increasingly professionalised, often, and, and we're called to justify it, often that means that we find ourselves measuring against these sort of uh, utopian futures where all interventions must be deeply transformative uh, instead of actually measuring against the existing alternatives that, you know, what exists right now and what they actually deliver in the way of, of safety or liberation. Yeah, um, a lot of thinking <laughs> um, has to be done around perfectionism, that dear of... Um, yeah, working towards like the perfect transformative justice um, model. But it's it's so interesting because, I mean, if you are then to, say, intervene where there is um, intimate partner violence occurring and then you do choose to call the police, then what are the police going to do about that incident? So that's what we have to think about. It's the alternative of, yeah, calling the police um, have them potentially serve an intervention order on somebody um, and then that party then potentially being like criminalised um, for that action or not calling the police um, and trying to figure out another way to address this harm. Mm, and I think you said something so, so acute right before we started this, this interview as well about uh, being wary of that language of alternatives and I think I feel really wary of it as well because there is, I think that thin language as if there are ready and really easy alternatives or if there's one simple answer. There's been a lot of beautiful writing and commentary coming out during this COVID context about it, hasn't there, around the idea that it's taken, you know, hundreds of years to build this particular form of the prison industrial complex and everything that it entails. And so asking people to provide one simple or template alternative as if that already readily exists doesn't allow us to get into the nuance of that work and the rich histories and genealogies of the work. And the reality is that this work is nuanced and complex and we're building those alternatives all the time. So that's very much where I think this work is situated in looking at what are those techniques that we might be able to use to strengthen our own capacity and skills within communities to respond to harm. Oh, I completely agree, um, because alongside the prison industrial complex, we have the welfare industrial complex. And so when these incidents of violence happen, we're looking for someone else to call, we're looking for another organisation, another institution, um, because a lot of the time, yeah, like you said, um, we don't think that we're qualified enough, we're the professionals. Um, but I think it's interesting that in um, you know cases of domestic or family violence where people will happily call the police um, and the police are people that you don't know the police aren't people that the people that you're trying to assist know um, and really the police response is oriented towards punishment so they're not going to be doing any um, asset mapping or safety planning with um, the people who have experienced harm and I think one thing that's missed in that, isn't there, is this wealth of expertise that exists 
in the lives and experiences and resources of people who experience and live with violence and also then the opportunities um, that exist because the communities, the relationships, the families, the locations that exist around around where violence is occurring are often the most invested in achieving long-term sustainable transformative solutions and, and healing around that violence and often are so well placed to envisage really creative solutions, creative interventions and responses. And so often that sort of missed, I think, in, in what you're summarising really neatly about that idea that, that safety is, is the business of, of outside experts or agencies that exist elsewhere as opposed to the business of, of communities ourselves. So on that note, uh, talk us through asset mapping. What is it? Um, how does it work? How do we practice it? Cool. Um, so so we're, we're going to talk about a couple of tools, I think, that we've been using in the Beyond Triple Zero and other workshops. Um, one of them is the asset mapping tool. Asset mapping is a term that I think gets used in a lot of different ways, but in this case, uh, we're talking about asset mapping, and I should say the workshop's focus, asset mapping can be used around different types of violence in harm, and harm, but in this case, the workshops are tended to focus around into a partner and family violence because that's been the kind of context and emphasis of the work. But asset mapping is essentially uh, a way of thinking in advance of a crisis and a way of, of having conversations um, and sort of auditing to have a look at what sort of assets or protective factors are present in the situation already and what other things like relationships, people, skills, locations, context, anything else, resources, can assist with improving safety, with mitigating risk or with providing support in a time of danger or crisis. So how we've been using this um, this tool through the workshops and more generally is that basically it's distilled down into a, um, a handout that's a couple of pages. And we've done that in a way that mirrors a lot of the, the kind of common usage of, of family violence services, especially around safety planning, so that the two can hopefully sit together. Um, but the idea is that it can be applied um, and used by all different groups so that it could be used, um, you know, the idea of communities can be pretty slippery sometimes, right? Um, and so this is one, that, one way of kind of working together in locations or groups, whether it's neighbourhoods, friendship groups or small pods, you know, that, that kind of um, pod mapping work that you did earlier in, in the previous episode. Um, to actually try and identify and draw out some of those resources. So it's also about a way of listening and responding when someone's describing their situation. So if we're talking about family violence or a situation like that, it's a way of, of listening that allows you and supports you to notice their responses, so the responses they're using already, and the assets that they have and that they identify in themselves and around them, and to build outwards from there to consider what other assets might be brought to bear to, to increase safety, but also to kind of, um, with that idea of liberation in mind as well. Um, and so the asset mapping worksheet sort of moves through a bit of a kind of who, what, where, how uh, type flow and when. Sort of it moves through who, like who might be key people or supports, like family or friends or communities or, or workers, what skills people have. It looks at what. Are there things, objects, items that could be used to enhance safety? That can be things like anything from cars to phones to cash to clothes to extra belongings to other resources. Uh, in the where section, that really homes in on whether there are locations or places where risk is reduced or where safety is improved. So that might include places in the home, 
it might include other locations, so things including like locations not known to the person who's causing harm or places where people in the community are willing to act in support of the person who's being targeted or where people can be asked to be ready to respond. And then it's got a section on how, so that's the kind of plan itself. So how will these assets or people be activated to assist with safety? Do they already know about the situation? What do they know? How will they know to enact the plan? So considering how people will be communicated with through that sort of use of asset mapping. And also the when. So when are these assets available? When might they be activated? Are they ongoing? Are they time-specific? So it's kind of moving us from um, thinking about what we've got mapping what sort of resources are available to us and thinking about how to move from there towards kind of safety planning. Uh, and then it concludes with just a bit of a, um, an audit of, I guess, what are the gaps? Are there gaps? Are there things that are missing in our own communities or settings or locations? And if so, are there actions that we could take to try and fill those gaps to be better ready to respond to crisis or harm? Fantastic. Um, and when you've been doing these workshops, uh, the Beyond Triple Zero workshops, how have you found people have responded to asset mapping as a tool? Uh, so I think it's something that we've definitely been honing and or that I've been honing as we go along because I think the responses are different in different locations. And one of the things we've, we've found so far, I think, is related to that, that idea of, and I think that, that Ocean spoke about it in the previous episode as well, a little bit about ideas around community and, and how challenging it can be to pin down what can be a very, very large concept into something practical that you can apply, that you feel connected to, that you could leverage in a time of, of crisis or harm. So one thing that we found is that it can be really useful to go smaller and to think about smaller networks of relationships, family groups, friendship groups, um, perhaps communities that are kind of bounded by geography. And also to think about mapping assets around specific situations or, or types of harm. So it is really useful to canvas very broadly, but I think when we get into the specific situations, that's where it's helped to really draw out particular assets. And also in the workshops, we've tended to do this work after we've spent some time talking about triple zero responses and why they're often centred, especially on safety plans, as the first thing that, that people are recommended to do what the first thing that people are expected to do. And I think when we've been able to break that down and to figure out exactly what people are wanting to get from a triple zero response, that's often things like 24-hour access or the assumption that a response will be rapid or, um, you know, it can be things like having a location to go to that's, that's open, that's brightly lit. All of these different individual characteristics, the more specific that we've been able to get, with what we want to get out of triple zero responses, so not what we always get or not what people always get, but what's desired from them. The more specific that we um, in groups then been able to be with having a look to see where those particular assets or traits or characteristics already exist within our communities or where they can be built or, or leveraged or used in times of crisis uh, to improve safety and to minimise risk. And have you um, found that by doing these workshops that you've kind of been able to discuss with people in the community some really, like, you know, different or creative um, ways in how to stay safe um, and maybe talked about some, like, places or resources where you might not have looked before for safety? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's such a great 
it's such a great question because I think that often these conversations, especially if we can try to have them outside of crisis situations, if we can try to have them and, and normalise them and also have them when we've got a little bit more time to get into the nuance and to actually unpack all of the different options, one of the things that comes out of these conversations is a real sense of the level of insight, expertise and kind of ingenuity that exists uh, in communities, in people who are experiencing violence and in those who are working to support those people. And so I think often there are all kinds of creative options that come out, but there's a whole lot of uh, kind of information sharing and skilling up that happens just as we're able to share those strategies with each other and to kind of talk about, you know, what's worked in one context or one situation or what creative strategy uh, one one community used or, or one person and one family group of used and to be able to share those to sort of actually train each other up um, rather than assuming that, you know, the workshops certainly don't assume that, that we're coming in and training people and they don't know anything, but actually that those resources and strategies are often there and it's a case of creating a, a, an opportunity to share them and to kind of um, brainstorm and, and spend some time talking about those options. Mm. Absolutely. And for people who have experienced harm as well, um, I mean, they are the experts in their life and they've already been using tools um, to keep themselves safe. And so that's the point at which you have to start. Um, and yeah, could you now speak a little bit more about the safety plan and action chart that you've uh, been involved in creating? Yeah. So in terms of the safety planning template, that is designed to kind of fit with or to follow on from the asset mapping work. But it's a tool that, that I have and that we have adapted from some work, a couple of different tools that are present in the Creative Interventions Toolkit, which is a, a phenomenal free toolkit for community interventions. It's available online if you just Google Creative Interventions. Uh, but what we've done is we've adapted that toolkit and, and we've done that for context. Um, we've adapted it to sort of... Um, to look at what's taking place in and around family violence organising here in this location and to consider the ways that people typically uh, tend to approach safety planning from a family violence perspective here. And so this staying safe tool or safety planning template is, um, is a more specific tool than asset mapping um, in that it specifically seeks to articulate a plan to respond to an immediate family violence crisis. But what's different about it as compared to some of the other safety planning that the agencies and workers and others do, is that it's prepared to deal with concurrent risk. So it doesn't assume that the only violence or risk that's occurring is the family violence. Uh, so it's focused very much on survivor expertise and understanding from people what's happening in their lives and what sort of risks they're managing at the same time. So if a risk of criminalisation is in there or a history of, of kind of state violence, that's something that would also be part of, of the safety plan. So it doesn't default to triple zero in the same way. That doesn't mean it precludes people from calling triple zero, but it doesn't assume that risk only comes from family violence and it doesn't assume that police will be a site of safety for everyone or that a response from police is what people want in 100% of cases. Um, so that's one of the kind of core differences and it, it endeavours to be able to... Um, work very strongly from from the survivor's expertise and to build out from there in, in making a plan. And it can definitely be used in conjunction with other risk assessment tools, like in Victoria, most agencies use the MARAM framework. So it can be used in conjunction with that. But it's basically a safety plan and action chart. And what it does is it, it, it 
uh, understood to kind of come from a collaborative conversation that you're having with a with a person or people experiencing violence, and it it talks us through unpacking what the safety plans for, so which situation, what sort of time period. And then it's a bit different to a lot of other safety planning tools in that it's got a number of columns. So that's where it relates to different types of risk or different situations that could be happening. So as we said, stuff that might be related to the state, might be related to other situations, might be related to immigration. So it's got those various different, those various different columns at the top for risk, danger or harm. There's also a column that looks at who or what is the cause of that risk, danger and harm. So the safety plan can ideally um, respond and be managing those, those various different situations of risk at the same time. It's got a column that talks about who is the target of the risk or the danger or harm. In column four, it looks at who is looking out for safety. So that's where we really start being able to kind of draw from the asset mapping work into a safety plan. And then column five is the plan itself. So what safety actions will be taken and under what circumstances. And, uh, and that's adapted at the moment just to be able to use in, in, to be able to be used in this kind of current location. It's a really flexible tool. It's definitely not prescriptive. It doesn't assume that there's any kind of one size fits all approach to safety. But it's about really trying to scan the situations to look at the responses that somebody's already using to keep themselves safe and looking then at what else exists in their families, relationships and communities around them that might be leveraged to be able to help support that safety. And with this asset mapping and safety planning, how long does it really take to do? That's a really good question. I mean, I think we've, because we've tended to use, in the training context, it takes a little bit longer. So it means often we're sort of sitting down and, and doing workshops and, and spending some time moving between groups and talking about what sort of um, assets exist in different situations. Sometimes we might be doing that with a scenario. Sometimes somebody might bring a scenario and then we work collectively together to look at kind of what assets are already present in it that they're using and that they're accessing and where there might be questions um, and other gaps. And that process, I think, can go anywhere from kind of 30 minutes um, up to a couple of hours. When I've used the tools in situations, I think they're very adaptable, so they can be used uh, in kind of shorter, in sort of shorter situations or in more confined time limits. Um, they're designed so that they don't have to be used together. So the, the safety planning or staying safe tool is something I've used and I do use a lot in my work, often following some of those kind of risk um, conversations with people experiencing violence. Uh, and those can be done, I think, in the usual amount of time that it would take to do a safety plan. So sometimes they're happening, as you know, in really constrained ways, especially if someone's in a, in a crisis situation. So sometimes there's a lot of time pressure to do those very quickly, but I think what they can do is give a structure to be able to have those conversations in a way that canvases quite widely across options. What are some tips, um, a bit of advice that you can give for listeners who are going to maybe try asset mapping and safety planning, but they might not have done it before? So in the way of advice, I'd say that there's a huge amount of resources out there. There's a whole lot of really brilliant and detailed uh, work around community responses to safety. There are things like the Creative Interventions Toolkit. There's a whole lot of work that has been developed and is being developed locally. So I think there are many opportunities to actually access and learn from those resources and also to jump on a whole lot of the different trainings that are happening here but also internationally 
make sure that we're really taking this seriously and filling ourselves up. I completely agree, Loz. But I also want to say to listeners that there is just no step-by-step guide or program that exists for working outside of the state. And so you're always going to be like coming up against a lot of um, really tricky questions. And yeah, your practice is going to be really difficult. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. As, as there was such a beautiful kind of conclusion and, and way to leave it right is that we're all we're all in this together, we're all learning this together and being able to actually have those conversations really frankly about the challenges and the difficulties in the work and not assuming that because there are challenges it means we're doing it wrong, I think is a really important part of it as well. Well thank you so much Loz for joining me on Liberation Loops. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful to talk to you. And that was a conversation that I had with Lauren Caulfield about community responses to intimate partner violence. And definitely head to the 3CR website um, and search for the Acting Up program. Um, And there you can find um, all of the resources that Loz talked about today for both asset mapping and safety planning. And if you have any questions, please email me at cbaque3cr at gmail.com. Tune back in next week to hear a conversation that I have with Anna Carlson about surveillance amidst COVID-19. See you then. Housing for the Aged Action Group has gone digital to help stop the spread of the coronavirus, but we're still here. If you're over 50 years old and having problems with your housing, we can help. If you're having trouble paying the rent, problems with your retirement village manager or concerned about your caravan park, give us a call on 1300 765 178. We can also help connect you with aged care services and emergency relief if you need it. Stay safe, everyone. Hi, we're the Marindas and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM. All right, so now we're going to play another new track for you. This one is I Feel It by the Marindas.
Listening to 3CR 855 AM. And the song that we just played for you then was I Feel It by the Marindas. You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 855 AM. And now we're really lucky to be joined by April Watson on the show. Good morning, April. Good morning. Would you just briefly be able to introduce yourself for listeners? Yeah. Uh, my name is April Watson. I um, am a part of the campaign to release prisoners during the COVID pandemic. Um, I'm also the daughter of Tanya Day, um, an Aboriginal woman who died in police custody in 2017. You mentioned that you're part of the campaign to release Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people from prison during the COVID-19 pandemic. Just last week, um, an open letter was came out calling on government to take immediate action. Can you give listeners a bit of an overview of that letter? Yep, um, the letter has come from um, 10 of the family members who have also lost a loved one in prison or police custody, as well as other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And we're urging the government to release our mob from prison. Uh, we've asked for them to stop cr- criminalising our people and to care and protect our people um, and to make sure that they're providing urgent medical care, so testing and just really... Um, aiding to their basic human rights and to also support mob back into community. Like, you know, some of our people are in those prison cells and they have been quarantined and locked down for, you know, weeks with no human contact. And we have prisoners that don't have access to hope and uh, soap and hand sanitizer. If they do, they need to pay for it. So it's a real concern. In the letter, you sort of you you 
point attention at the fact that, you know, decarceration is happening around the world at the moment. So governments around the world are releasing folks from prison in order to stop or slow the spread of COVID-19. Could you talk a bit about how getting mob out of prison is also a vital public health response more broadly? Yeah, well, experts have said that the COVID-19 would spread faster in a prison than it would in a community. Um, and you have prisoners um, that don't get to social distance, that don't have access to hope, uh, soap and hand sanitizers. So it's a really high risk for them in there. But there's also prison guards that are in those prisons that could then walk right out of that prison cell with the virus and then be taking that home to their family and to community. So, you know, it's also um, about protecting the outside community, but it's it's really important that we protect the vulnerable people that are inside those prison walls. Um, the government are doing nothing about it and they're not even taking it serious about how dangerous this virus is for the people that are inside and we have really vulnerable people that are in there um, that have respiratory infections um, that have really severe asthma we've got mothers in there that are pregnant or that have their babies we have the elderly and that's why we're asking for them to release those prisoners because if we don't then it's very high chance that we're going to have more Aboriginal deaths in custody. One thing that I've been thinking about is how I worry that, you know, the governments around so-called Australia at the moment might be able to say, oh, you know, we've got things under control here. It's not so bad. We actually don't need, you know, it's sort of we can keep going as business as usual. We don't need to release people from prison um, anymore. Um, how would you sort of respond to that? Um, I, I feel like the government um, is delusional and they're really naive about um the state that Australia is in at the moment with this pandemic and they don't take health issues seriously with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And just on Friday, there was a landmark decision that the Supreme Court in Victoria found that the state government had breached its duty of care for prisoners um, with the COVID-19 pandemic. So that right there is a prime example of how they are failing, Mm. you know, so-called Australia, but also Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So I think that they need to act right now. Um, They need to act to ensure that we don't have more of our people dying in prison. And, you know, it's been nearly 30 years since the Royal Commission and there has been, you know, over 430 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander deaths. And that's heartbreaking to think that we've lost that many people and there's been little recommendations that have been implemented and that we're still fighting every single day and every single inquest to have systemic racism included within a scrape and for the reason why we're losing our loved ones. Could you speak a little bit more about why it's so important you know, in, in, here in so-called Victoria, we've just seen a huge investment into um, the, I mean, the police and prison system generally, but in terms of COVID-19 response into giving police greater powers. Why is a, res- a response that is criminalising people not the answer now more than ever? Well, that is the most dangerous and risky thing that you can do. Um, why would you want to be handing over more policing powers that puts our people of risk of 
contracting the virus inside a prison. Like to me, it doesn't make any sense besides them wanting to control our people and people that are vulnerable. Um, the only way to prevent Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people from this virus is to be helping them in community, not to be you know, over-policing them and fining them and then also arresting them and putting them in, pri- in prison. Like, it, it's just they're trapped in there. And the legal system during this time should be trying to help not escalate everything that's going on. And in the in the open letter from families, it talks about not only the need to urgently release mob from prison, but also make sure there's adequate resources and supports in place um, for when folks are released and so supporting families and communities. Can you speak a bit more about that side of things? Yeah, so um, we did, there was, you know, like four main points and that was to um, ensure transparency and community accountability when releasing First Nations people um, by making sure that the powers to release don't sit with one person but rather an independent board. Um, and that's just really to ensure that, you know, our people and community are supported when they come out. And, you know, these people have been inside prison for however long and especially if they've been isolating these prisoners within side, it would be a really traumatic experience. So especially them coming out into community, it's important that they're supported by their family and their loved ones in doing so. What can listeners do to to get behind this open letter and call on government to, to urgently release First Nations people from prison? Um, definitely sign the petition. There's a petition that is calling for our mob to be released. Um, and with any anything that I have spoken about before, it's just making sure that people are aware of the issues that are going on. It's, you know, constantly having that conversation with community and your loved ones um, and sharing as much as possible. Sometimes the only way that you find out about these really serious issues is via social media. So it's really important that, you know, everyone does their part in sharing the campaign and sharing the petition and, you know, really really advocating and pushing that out as much as possible. And we'll definitely put a link to to the letter and the petition on our social media. But before we wrap up, April, is there anything that we haven't covered in our chat today that you'd like to mention? No, not really. I think it's just important that we really point out that um, Aboriginal people are really vulnerable at contracting the COVID-19 and we need to think about their health and well-being and we need to release them and you know bring them back into community safely because if we don't more people are going to die and we're going to be you know mourning our loved ones and community members once again if the government doesn't act now and we've seen time and time again the government's failed aboriginal people which has just resulted in more deaths so it's right now is the time that they need to act to ensure that that doesn't happen again thank you so much april for joining us on thursday breakfast No, thank you for having me. This is 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55am, and you've just been hearing a conversation I had with April Watson on the open letter from families of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who have been killed in police custody or prisons. 
calling on Australian governments to immediately release First Nations people from prison in response to COVID-19. Stay tuned for more on 3CR Thursday Breakfast. Street CR Community Radio, 855 AM. Next up, we have a conversation with Dr. Shakira Hussein, who speaks to us a little bit about the intersections of race and COVID-19. Uh, and it especially draws parallels with uh, Islamophobic discourses. Thank you for joining us uh, on 3CR. So, you know, one of the good things about uh, COVID-19... Um, one of the pluses of a, of a global pandemic. <laughs> ...is that we get, we get to pre-record everything. I don't know if that's a, a plus or a negative. But um, what I'm finding particularly great about today is that I'm actually um, outside, like, having this conversation with you inside your apartment and I'm outside standing on the steps. Uh, one of the downsides, of course, was that our technology didn't work. So, yeah, it will be nice to see how this goes. I, I like <laughs> that you're making such a brave take on standing out in the cold and the rain to do this interview show, as I am I'm at least sitting out of the rain. But anyhow. Um, yeah, so, I bet, so firstly, before we uh, start talking about what we were going to talk about, which is more to do with the sort of racial, class and gender dynamics of COVID-19, particularly with particular reference to Australia. Could you just tell us a bit about yourself and the work that you do? I'm an academic based at the University of Melbourne, although not currently on their payroll, about which I gave an interview to the feed a few days ago, but anyhow. Um, and I have been researching the racialization of Muslim identity as well as, you know, um, gender violence, racism, and, um, and Muslim women for a long time. So I'm interested in that, the way that COVID-19 is manifesting in those discourses. Okay, so a few things have happened since the start of the pandemic, in, especially in relation, in relation to sort of like Islam and racialization. Uh, and one of them that comes to mind that wasn't really touched upon because it was the start of the mediatised pandemic response in Australia uh, was the trial of, well, I shouldn't say his name, of the shooter, of the uh, Christchurch shooter in New Zealand. Yeah, that's a huge story or would have been a huge story in what we now think of as normal times. They weren't that normal. And actually there was another story involving a mass shooting, but this story didn't get nearly as much attention as it should have. The shooting of in a disabled care home in Japan, oh, I don't know how many years ago now, and the perpetrator of that atrocity was actually sentenced to death um, since, since the pandemic. And again, that has received practically no media attention. That particular massacre never was the kind of global news story that it ought to have been. But yet, yes, the Christchurch Tudor's plea of guilty, and which was given in the presence of just, um, you know, in a closed courtroom because of the pandemic conditions, that has not passed without notice, but not received the degree of attention. His sentencing 
has been delayed until after the pandemic to allow the family members and survivors of that atrocity to be there. I have mixed feelings about that because on one level he wants the attention. So the fact that he didn't get it at the point where he pled guilty is not altogether a bad thing. On the other hand, his plea of guilty seems to have been a, a back down initially. There were every indication that he was going to go for a trial. He wanted maximum media exposure, even knowing that the outcome was inevitable. He, he wanted a trial. He wanted cross-examinations. He wanted to put his you know, victims through that further ordeal, and at least his guilty plea spares them that. And also, as I said, means that he has been deprived of a tiny little bit of the publicity that he'd been, that was always his major motive. And you said you have mixed emotions about that. So what's that? What's the other side of of that? If we we can't really sort of put it on a binary, I guess. But like, yeah. what are the other emotions that you have around that? Well, we should never forget mm. Christchurch, and we shouldn't let what happened in Christchurch now just seem like a blip because the pandemic came within a year afterwards. So. Yeah, we do need to. Um, we, we yeah, we do, we do need to maintain that memory. But we should focus on the survivors. We should focus on the bereaved family members. We should focus on the people who lost their lives. We should let the offender. We should we should let him be forgotten. We should let him fade into obscurity. We should let him, when we think of him at all, outside of the the, the analysts who need to analyse, sorry, analysts do, the analysts who are examining you know, how to prevent future such atrocities and what, and what drives these kind of attacks. Outside of that particular discourse, he should just be remembered when he's remembered as a loser, you know. Yeah. He shouldn't be glamorised. Yeah. And I guess as as we just started, as we're heading into the month, well, as we're now in the month of, of Ramadan, um, I suppose could we could we speak a little bit about um, the sort of racialization of Islam in particular and its sort of uh, the paradoxes with COVID. Um, and I know a lot of our com- or some of our conversations have been, for example, around wearing masks in public. Um, and the sort of like contradictions with uh, women wearing uh, niqabs or burqas. It's interesting after years and years and years of burqa bans in Europe that now some of those European um, countries and municipalities are making it compulsory to wear face masks in public and those who are have imposed both the bans and now the, the mandatory Veils will say, oh, well, that's because the rationale is so different. This is a medical purpose, and there's always been an exemption for medical masks. I'll note that early on in the pandemic, there was a news report from Paris about Chinese tourists being stung by fraudsters who, Chinese tourists who started wearing face masks early on because they remember 
um, they, they remember SARS and and it's been an um, accepted response every flu season actually you would notice people of Asian appearance in doctors' surgeries and on plastic and on public transport wearing masks. But to get back to Paris 2020, these Chinese tourists wearing masks were approached by scamsters who told them that they were getting an on-the-spot fine for breaking the burqa ban. And as I said, there had always been a medical exemption for that. But it shows this the racialization of Muslims then being extended to racialized targeting of Chinese-looking people. And it's interesting now that masks are being worn by, like, normal white people. They've become sort of this kind of fashion, you know, and it has this sort of edgy association with death and danger and, you know, and cool extremes, not like ISIS extremes, but, <laughs> but, but, but like white people extremes and um, they featured on the Paris on the on the catwalk at the big fashion shows and um, never mind that there have been modest fashion shows um, for like years and the um, and the and the political and media discourse of that was saying this is just so troubling it's just trying to make patriarchal fashionable we can't have that well, you know, unlike making a global pandemic that's killing you know, hundreds of thousands of people, unlike making that fashionable. You know. <laughs> so, insert iron. <laughs> and yeah, you just you just um, uh, brought up that link for that example from Paris about the sort of uh, these sort of public space spaces and um, the intersection of of race. Uh, and the public space. Could you speak more to that with particular focus on Australia? Yeah. So in Australia and elsewhere, we've seen attacks on Asian-looking people wearing masks that everyone acknowledges are a response to the pandemic, just as we saw attacks on Muslim women wearing niqab. There have been a number of them. And it does seem to be targeted at women rather than men, although in the case of the pandemic masks, you know, that men are wearing them as well. And, um, and also people of Asian appearance who weren't wearing masks at all, who were just told that it was their fault, you know, that, that, that the virus was out there, that it was due to their primitive food customs, that if they'd stopped eating bats, then we wouldn't all be going through this. But it's a mark of how flexible and fast-moving racism is, because although there'd been a spike in anti-Chinese racism well before the pandemic, just as there'd been Islamophobia prior to 2001, Islamophobia that was mostly directed at, quote, Lebanese crime gangs, unquote, before the pandemic it had all been about these uh, Chinese people who were driving up property prices and topping the HSC at the expense of good Anglo kids and taking over the selective private schools and how dare they you know, um, getting ahead at the expense of good, hard-working, middle-class white people. And, but then after the pandemic, um, there was this much heightened visibility of anti-Chinese racism. 
and um, and expressions of shock at its return um, from people who really ought to have seen it coming. That was the first part of two-part talk with Dr. Shakira Hussain, who specialises in Islamophobia, speaking to us a little bit about sort of the racial dynamics of COVID-19. Next week, we'll hear more within the settler colonial context of Australia. To find out more, to follow a bit more of her work, you can follow her on Twitter, which is at Shakira Hussain, Shakira spelled S-H-A-K-I-R-A, Hussein spelled H-U-S-S-E-I-N. Join me, Aya Cry with Ubuntu Voices. Wednesday at 8.30 p.m. on 3CR. Ubuntu is a Zulu word meaning I am here because you are. Ubuntu celebrates the positive contribution African Australians make to our communities in music, academia, the arts and everything in between. Come with me on a journey. Ubuntu Voices every Wednesday at 8.30 p.m. None of us are free. One of us is chained. None of us are free. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's Voice of Dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. Before we go into my interview with Chelsea Bond, we'll hear a new poem by Nika Lehman, a writer and artist living and working on cooling country. Nika grew up in Tasmania, or Latruwita, and descends from the Trawolwe peoples of northeast Tasmania. Their ancestral and contemporary stories inform Nika's written and visual practice. This poem is called Cook 250. In all the ways I still find fire in this city, touched down by skyboats spitting flares, greased historic reflections beyond the long and dirty grass. There is less time to silhouette in the old ways. A dense warm brick, a shaved down fig melts liquid without restriction from the confines of the yard. Punish a laudable confusion. In balm my dissonance now, I want to remember the muddied hem, a transit trails behind. Eyes squint oriented towards smoke. Now we go to an interview that I did with Chelsea Bond, a Mananjali and South Sea Islander woman and long-term Aboriginal health worker and researcher. Chelsea is an associate professor at the University of Queensland's Post Centre for Indigenous Health and a co-host of the show Wild Black Woman on 989FM in Minjin. Chelsea and I speak about the 250th anniversary of Cook's invasion of so-called Australia and the public discussion that's been circulating around that last week. Now I'm speaking with Chelsea Bond, who's a research fellow at the School of Social Sciences at UQ. Hi, Chelsea. Thanks so much for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. So would you mind briefly introducing yourself for listeners and giving them a bit of a background on who you are and what you do? Sure. Um, So my name is Chelsea Bond. Bond is my married name. Um, I was originally born a Wadigo, which denotes my South Sea Islander ancestry. Um, I'm also a Mananjali woman through the Williams family, uh, born and raised on Yagara country. Um, I'm a mum of five. 
Um, I'm one half of Wild Black Woman, uh, the radio show, um, and my day job is as an academic, um, uh, as a researcher within the School of Social Science. But my um, and my research is around um, race and health, um, and particular, um, in particular, the, the survival of black fellows in this place. Yeah, and very important work to be doing, and especially, I think, important work to be doing during COVID-19 and to amplify that discussion now. Um, so as we know, there was a significant anniversary last Wednesday, the 29th of April, the 250th anniversary of the landing of Captain Cook at Kame or Botany Bay in 1770. And there's been a lot of heated discussion around this being named as the beginning of invasion. But what are your thoughts on the, on the date itself and the backlash that has come out from conservative commentators? Well, look, I mean, I'm no historian, um, but um, the myth of Cook's discovery is something that's been indoctrinated into most of us throughout our primary school and high school education. Um, and so it really struck me this kind of um, pan- almost panic about, you know, um, you know, reclaiming our history as though that this hasn't been the prevailing story of history that's taught in our schools. So it was really bizarre to me. And I mean, um, you had the likes of Trent Dalton um, on Sky News talking about the importance of really understanding Cook's character um, and getting a full history. And then when asked about Indigenous people's experience of this anniversary, he's like, well, yeah, things kind of didn't work out the way in which they were supposed to, but, you know, that's just history. Um, and in, like, one sentence, he kind of revealed the contradiction of that anniversary. Um, and, you know, just the... the um, this kind of mythologizing, even from when it was first um, to be celebrated as this, this reenactment of the endeavor's circumnavigation around the continent. I, it's just hilarious to me that there are these, um, that, that, that there's a need to just invent this kind of national narrative, particularly when they have been the authors of um, the historical story of this place in such a way that a silenced Blackfellas experience of this place. So it's just, I'm just like, it's it's it still shocks me that there was this concern that their account of history had been forgotten. I mean, how do they think blackfellas feel? Yeah, this like level of insecurity I think is really interesting because I was also reading back over some news from around Invasion Day and I saw that uh Dan Tian, the education minister, had committed I think around twelve billion dollars to better understand our history. But really, what history are we talking about here? I know, and like you know, I've um, I get to um, revisit the violence of the school curriculum by my children. So um, you know, I've had examples where this the in year six history um, they decided to look at um, the stolen generation, um, but in advance of that, they sent a letter to every single parent in the school in that or in the class um, foreshadowing this dark part of the nation's history and that if any of their children felt traumatised by the material, they could uh, sit outside the classroom. Um, and that, <laughs> that struck me as really odd that um, such an important part of this nation's history was something you could opt out of if it was too uncomfortable for you. And no doubt that letter was written for um, whitefellas, not blackfellas who actually might be re-traumatised by that history being taught in a really bad way, which we did by that letter. Um, uh, so it's just, you know, it's like 
uh, I, I just get confused about when did things, when did the pendulum swing the other way? Um, I, I, I miss the moment. Um, and so it just strikes me as odd some of these conversations we're having because it's like, well, it's nothing has changed. Yeah, it, it's almost as if there's like um, this very vocal minority who has never really had their voice heard. But of course, that's been the dominant discourse of this country since colonization began. Um, but I'm also interested in unpacking this sort of habit both ways takes on invasion, where there's a suggestion that we can celebrate Aboriginal people and resistance and also celebrate Captain Cook as the sort of founding father of the nation. Um, yeah, I was wondering what your thoughts are on that type of framing as well. Uh, look, I mean, I'd be up for the whole let's look at both sides kind of thing because we haven't actually looked at, you know, uh, in school we learn about Oxley, Logan, Cunningham. We didn't learn about Dundalee and Pemmel White. We didn't learn about our heroes. Um, so if that were true, then I would welcome, um, you know, uh, the greater inclusion of our heroes um, throughout history. Um, but the moment our stories enter into the curriculum, enter into public discourse, we, we are met with this, this claim of, you know, the um, black armband view of history. Um, we actually don't get to tell our stories in this place. Um, we don't get to tell the truth of genocide in this place. Um, we don't get to celebrate the fact that we are genocide survivors in this place. Um, you know, we're denied any sense of our history or any right to feeling strong about our survival in this most violent place. Um, and so, yeah, it'd be great if we could do both sides. The reality is we can't. Um, and, you know, even teaching it at, at, um, in, at university, um, if you tell the true history about this place in a, in a class, you can guarantee that there'll be some pretty negative backlash on your teaching evaluations. Like, um, I, I welcome the day that comes that we can include both accounts of history unproblematically. Mm, yeah, and I feel like um, there's so much sort of knee-jerk um, anger that comes out in response to Indigenous resistance as if that hasn't been ongoing for 250 years. Like every time there is, you know, an Aboriginal resistance gathering, um, of course, you know, there were there were plans for that to occur around 250, but these have been affected by COVID-19. Uh, but there's always such, you know, surprise and shock um, about, you know, the embodiment of sovereign resistance in that way. Um, so I was wondering if you could speak to the significance of a more public acknowledgement and validation of this 250 years of resistance and unbroken sovereignty and the way that this kind of conversation can be brought more into the public discourse in a productive way. Yeah. I mean, I'm always, I guess, excited by um, black presence every day, um, the way in which black fellas turn up in all kinds of spaces that we're not meant to exist within. Um, I really love um, the way in which um, how black fellas um, use our bodies um, all the time um, as as a, as a everyday resistance against colonisation. Um, and in the most violent ways, um, I, I think about, you know, the, the fact that still here is something that we um, put on banners and belt buckles and T-shirts. Um, we are still reminding the settlers that we're still here. And there's something really powerful 
in those everyday moments, the way in which black bodies claim claim the space that that, that, that um, we came from, um, and as a site, the, the body as a site of resistance in that. Um, uh, so I'm I get excited by um, the acts of black fellas, not necessarily the the anniversaries or the ceremonies, but the everydayness of resistance in the colony. Um, whether it's in online spaces, creative spaces, um, through music. Um, I think that's the, the thing I love about teaching in critical Indigenous studies is to celebrate our survival as every day and everywhere. And um, that's the be- beautiful part about our history is um, even in the midst of the violence and the crisis, um, the beauty of blackfellas in terms of our intelligence, our humour, our humanity, like our ability to care for people who never gave a shit about us. Because the week before, as people stepped onto their driveways and commemorated Anzac Day, we remember the black diggers who fought for a country that despised it. Um, so I'm, I'm nourished by the beauty of blackfellas here, despite everything that's, that's, that's happened to us. And I guess that's what disappoints me about when we don't get to tell our story about our history is it being denied the hist- our own history or being able to talk about and celebrate the things that um, uh, harmed us, the, the things that uh, we draw strength from, it's, it's denial of our humanity. And um, I want my kids growing up knowing about the beauty and strength of our mob, not our resilience um, that we just, you know, um, we never fought back and that we're all passive and, we, you know, we just still exist just because, but our strength as a people. Um, and the strategies for survival that we can learn when we look back at our, at our ancestors. Um, and so, I, yeah, the denial of history, it's not just something about, to, to, for me, it's not just about um, telling white fellas who we are, but it's about what it does for us as black fellas, about knowing our own stories and being nourished by them, um, just like white fellas are when they see that gammon ship sail around the continent. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely, because I feel like when I'm reading most of the media commentary that does come out about this, some of it historicizes Aboriginal people, and then some of it uses that resilience framing rather than talking about, you know, active survivance of Indigenous peoples, you know, not not a static historicized figure. Yeah. That's just what it made me wild, I think, in the, in the, the midst of a pandemic, um, this refusal to learn from blackfellas about survival and even the, you know, the pearl clutching over the comparison from the deputy chief health officer between COVID-19 and, and Cook 1770. Um, you know, we're the oldest living culture in the world. Uh, pre and post the ship's arrival, we were theorising survival in this place and it has always been a fairly harsh climate that we've had to survive in. Um, in all kinds of ways. And um, it still strikes me that people don't see that there's something to learn from blackfellas in this place about what it means to not just exist, but to thrive in a place that insists upon your demise. Um, and, you know, before COVID-19 hit, um, we were having these conversations around the bushfires and land management. Um, it's like, how many times do we have to um, be reminded of that maybe there is a need to kind of think through the relationship between the settlers and Indigenous peoples um, uh, beyond the constitution, but as part of that story of thinking about the, our relationship and our existence in this place, that 
might create a way for us to think about what it means to have this kind of what um, Annie um, Lula Watson talks about, a non-colonising coexistence. Um, yeah. So it's, she's um, I've spoken about this, you know, that blackfellas were non-colonising people. If you think about all the different uh, nations that existed on this continent of um, not one taking over the other or dominating this landmass. Um, and so there is much to learn from us about what it means to be in relationship um, with each other. Um, and, you know, like the, the, real, the fact that um, the most radical proposition that blackfellas are posing in this place is a negotiated form of coexistence says something about the violence of this colony. Yeah. And I mean, like the the fact that there's all these attempts to try and make, you know, reconciliation happen before dealing with the hard stuff um, kind of speaks to the, the political will of of the colonizing state to engage with those issues where there's this amnesia. And then again and again, the issue comes up. Well, what if we what if we related in a different way? Um, and then that gets pushed down until the next issue comes up. Um, so is there anything that we haven't touched on that you would like to raise before we, before we finish up? Um, not that I could think of. Does that make sense? Yeah. Cool. Um, I mean, I, it sounded good to me. <laughs> and finally, um, where can listeners learn more about the issues that we have discussed, um, and also read or listen to more of your work? Oh, um, well, so um, one of the, the, the um, strategies for my own survival in this place has been humour. Um, and um, I came to do um, the Wild Black Woman podcast out of necessity. I had to raise five kids on my own and so I had to have some, some side gigs. And it just turned out that um, it did a whole lot more for me uh, in terms of being able to cope with a whole lot of things. And um, so every week I catch up with my sister Angelina Hurley and we talk about all the things that made us wild for the week. Um, and it's not, <laughs> funny, it's not actually we're not, we probably snort and laugh more than we get angry. Um, but yeah, we, um, I guess use humour as a way to kind of think about the world and laugh at the world that, uh, you know, at times fails to recognise our humanity. Um, but I think it's something that we've learned from our old people too about, um, that uh, the need to, to laugh and to reclaim some sense of agency in, in, in our lives on a day-to-day basis. Um, so, yeah, I love we, every, every Friday, um, mostly live, we get together and talk about the week that was 9 a.m. on 98.9 FM, um, but you can catch us on a podcast um, through the station. Um, it's a whole lot of fun. And, um, yeah, we just celebrate the achievements of Blackfellas and the, the wit and humour. Um, yeah, that's good fun. Um, but I also do some writing every now and again for like Indigenous X and the conversation. Um, and I think out loud a lot on Twitter. Awesome. Thank you so much. We'll put links to all of that in the, in the show notes as well. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for joining me. Um, it was wonderful to have this conversation. I really appreciate your time. Awesome. Thank you so much. And I'll see you on Twitter. So we just heard a conversation that I had with Chelsea Bond about the 250th anniversary of invasion and the importance of honoring Aboriginal resistance and sovereignty in the everyday. Well, awesome show, everybody. Um, so just a bit of a rundown for listeners. 
first of all, you heard a conversation that I had with Lauren Caulfield um, about asset mapping and safety planning, so tools that people can use in the community to respond to uh, intimate partner violence. And then we heard a conversation that Max had with April Watson, um, daughter of Auntie Tanya Day, on the open letter from families of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander deaths in custody, calling on the Australian government to urgently release people from prisons to prevent COVID-19 deaths. And then Shahrazad, we heard a conversation that you had um, with Dr. Shakira Hussain. But yeah, we talked about the uh, intersections of uh, race, Islamophobia and COVID-19. Um, and I think this is, uh, the for, like, just for, um, grounding, uh, a paper that she's going to write, uh, on, um, face masks and niqabs and COVID-19 in the public space. And then lastly, we had, um, an incredible conversation that Priya had with Dr. Chelsea Bond. Um, so thanks so much for joining us on this year. This morning, um, next up is Lost in Science. 3CR would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton, or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events.